Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is October the 8th, 2013. This is episode 1223 of the Survival Podcast. And once again, we're doing TSP Classic, Survival Podcast Classic. Uh, originally, this was episode 298 that we'll be listening to today. And it was called Starting the Journey from Grasshopper to Ant. And what's cool about it is the show had been going on a little bit over a year. I had really found kind of the formula that we've stuck with uh, on preparedness. Uh, I'd come up with things like the inverse relationships between disaster probability and impact scale. Um working on the order of probability of disaster, etc., and really fired it out, the modern survival philosophy that drives the show yet still today. This was also a very well-received show. This show was actually one of the critical moments in the show where we began to get a critical mass of people telling others about the survival podcast. So much so that it was requested, and at the time I did provide a non-commercial version of the show. If you go to the show notes today, you'll see the link to a forum post where you can actually get this original version of the show with no commercial uh, components whatsoever. It was burned on the CDs. It was put on thumb drives. It was emailed to people. It was uh, one of those things that really kind of caught on because it took all of the scary, nonsensical bullcrap about survivalism away and made it a common-sense thing to do. And it, it really is why I chose it uh, to play for you guys while I'm away, because I know there's a lot of new people that, you know, you just don't have time to dig through 1,200 prior episodes. So this is a good one. I originally made this with the new person in mind. And by almost 300 episodes, I had a pretty good following at this point. The show was on track to become my full-time business, which occurred uh, just a few months later in 2010. So this is you know, heading into that, that second year, two-and-a-half-year point, where uh, we were about one year out from taking the thing full-time, uh, which it did in January of 2011. So we were, and we knew it was going to happen. We weren't there yet, but we knew it was going to happen. I'd even started to talk about it um, on the air regularly. So this is an interesting time in the survival podcast journey. Before I bring that on, though, let's take care of our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. Hey, we just did a show on reloading yesterday, but you got to start somewhere. And if you need ammo now, go to BulkAmmo.com. Get it in quantity. All the common calibers are available. Prices are much lower than they were a few months ago during the height of the ammo shortage and things like that. Um, you know, this stuff does happen. And if you want to be an effective gun owner, you have to have three things. Training, the gun, and the ammo. You leave any one of those three things in the triangle out, you don't have an effective gun operator. So make sure you've got the ammo. BulkAmmo.com is a place to do that. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. Um, by the time that the show was recorded, Safe Castle was with us, right? They had joined us in January of that year. That's how long they've been around. They're going to have their fifth year anniversary as a sponsor this January. Um, they're the original Survival Podcast sponsor, the first ones that step, stepped up and said, Jack, we want to sponsor this show. 
And uh, I built the entire sponsorship program around them. They have everything you could want for your prepping needs. Check them out today. The best way to visit Bulk Ammo and Safe Castle, go to our website, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin. Also, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You know, I just added the new benefit, uh, MSB uh, members-only videos that are like a week in review. Hopefully, I've gotten one up. I don't know. I mean, you're listening to this. On, uh, you know, October, Tuesday of October, the first week of October, I'm recording this intro on September 30th. Uh, so hopefully while I was away, I was able to get a video up for you guys, but they will be coming every week. Uh, that's just one new benefit to the MSB. Uh, Military Law Enforcement Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, including people like first responders as well, EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys qualify for a special service discount. Email me with service discount in the subject line at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com before you join, and I'll be happy to send you a discount code that will save you more money on a product that already pays for itself with multiple discounts. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year 1223. Uh, 1223, there's a lot of people mentioned that none of us really care about. Uh, the most notable things that occurred is um, King Louis uh, VIII is crowned King of France uh, after the, the death of King Philip II of France. So once again, another monarch shift. We see in this time a lot of rapid shifts from one monarch to the other. Major changes in leaderships of major kingdoms and the nations, you know, the superpower nations of their time. On the note of, you know, things moving forward and people not seeing it, uh, the Battle of the Kalka River, the Mongol armies of Genghis Khan defeat the Russian warriors. So the Mongols have, you know, totally taken over China, are moving into uh, Russia at this point. So the hordes are coming, uh, and nobody is really worried about it. You know, nobody's really got this figured out yet as, you know, doom is rising in the east. Um, most people that are just a little past it are just ignoring it. It sounds a lot like people that think prepping is a waste of time or it's something only crazy people do. There's no reason to worry. Everything will be okay. Sometimes the hordes are amassing, and the hordes are not always Mongols or an invading army. Sometimes they're an earthquake or a tornado or a, a, a hurricane or a forest fire or flooding. There's always something out there. And that's why we prepare, and that's what this classic episode, episode 298, was all about. So again, uh, prepare for a shift in audio quality as we move back um, to October 15, 2009. So let's say you are a new person or you're a seasoned uh, prepper and you're trying to help the new prepper get started. And either way, you're at a point where you're looking forward and realizing how much there is to be done. Um, a lot of new people, uh, they hear about a pending disaster. Something's going to happen. Y2K was a recent example. Uh, the whole world was going to go nuts. I, I thought those people were crazy, honestly, but they pointed out weaknesses in the systems of support. Uh, and right now there's people looking at 2012 and thinking the Mayans predicted the end of the earth or whatever. And there's all these, always something that's on the horizon of pandemic or whatever that's going to get us. And a lot of times, the reason you're finally looking, finally paying attention, is that something like that has come into your life, an awareness of it. It's always been there. It's always been a threat. If it's a threat today, it was a threat yesterday. 
There's very few emerging threats in the world. Humankind is a fragile thing, and it's been threatened throughout history. So when you become aware of these threats, that's the first thing you have to understand to ground yourself is the threat was there yesterday. It'll be there tomorrow. And all you can do is begin to prepare yourself as best you can. And what I like to start new people out with is just going back to our childhood and realizing that these lessons are not that crazy. They're not that out there. They're not even that amazing. They're simple. And in their simplicity lies their wisdom. So let's start out with an old story the story of the grasshopper and the ant, and the original, quick, down-and-dirty version of the story that my grandfather used to tell me on his knee when I was a young man. Uh, I wasn't a young man. I was a young little boy, a little baby, basically, uh, in the uh, coal region of Pennsylvania. And uh, we'd sit there and look out at the garden. He'd say, you know why we do that? We do that because we're ants. And I'd say, Grandfather, we're people. What do you mean, ants? He'd go, let me tell you the story of the grasshopper and the ant. And the old man would tell me this when I was, you know, five, six, seven years old. He say, see, the ant worked all day in the field, and he carried food back and forth, and he worked really hard, and all his other ant buddies worked with him. And they carried the food to the nest, and put the food in the ground. They ate a little bit of food every day. They worked a little bit every day. They even played a little bit every day. Everybody had a job. Everybody had a place. Everybody did something productive every single day. But they always made sure they did a little bit more work today than they needed to get through today. And they took that surplus and they stored it. They say, and the ants would come by this grasshopper playing and fiddling and farting off in the field. And they'd say, grasshopper, winter is coming. You need to get ready. You need to be prepared. When it's cold, you're going to freeze and you're going to die. And the grasshopper laughed at the ants for working so hard. Told the ants they were crazy. They were preparing for a disaster that would never come. And then the leaves started to change color and the vast food supply in the fields began to become more and more scarce for the grasshopper. He wasn't able to quite find enough food to eat every day. He started to get hungry. He started to get cold. The ants worked harder. He still frolicked because he was able to get by. And then it got really cold and the ants went into their home and they closed the door and the grasshopper was freezing cold, completely starving and had nothing. And he knocked on the ant's door and he said, will you please help me? I don't have anything. The ants never open the door, and the grasshopper dies. We screwed our children over, folks, by changing the end of the story to how the, gra- the ant lets the grasshopper in, he takes care of him, the grasshopper learns his lesson, we tone it down. The original Aesop fable, the grasshopper dies. That's the lesson that we need today. And that's two sides of a lesson. One, the alarmism of death. But we need to temper that with how simple it was for the ants to not have to deal with it. All they did was act like ants. And all we have to do is act like ants. And when you examine how ants act, they're orderly, they're organized, they have a command structure in place, and they simply do what makes sense. That is, they don't go nuts and get freaked out on the fact that winter will come. They simply do the same things every day that are beneficial to them every day in such a way that it lays out a plan for the future. That's what I'm going to talk to you about today. And we're going to go through 19 more steps now, pretty simple ones, that you can get started on, not complete, but get started on in the next 30 to 60 days. And 30 to 60 days from now, you'll be able to look back and realize you're not quite an ant yet, but you're not a grasshopper anymore. You're making that transformation. 
and you're going to feel a lot better about being able to take care of yourself and your family. And you're not going to have to do anything radical. You're not going to have to mortgage the house. You're not going to have to cash in the kids' college funds. In fact, I'm going to tell you how to help pay off the mortgage, increase the kids' college fund, and live a better life today, starting with the next step, which is... So, as we move on and develop a initial plan and an initial lifestyle around being more prepared and being able to uh, to deal with the things that may come our way, step two is we have to get into our minds a thought process that's the exact same process that you would teach somebody about wilderness survival. And even though that we are really not talking about surviving out in the wilderness here, we're talking about building a more sustainable lifestyle at home, and if you have to evacuate, being able to do that in orderly fashion, the, the rule still applies. And that rule is the first thing you have to do is assess your situation and stay calm. Let's look at it this way. We were just talking about how all of a sudden you wake up and you realize how vulnerable you are and people tend to freak out and either overreact or become overwhelmed and they stick their head back in the sand like an ostrich. These are really the two same things that happens to people in a wilderness survival situation. Guy's walking through the woods. He's out there. All of a sudden he realizes he's lost. Now, if he follows basic wilderness survival procedures, the first thing he's going to do is stop moving. In fact, he's going to sit down. He's going to consciously slow his breathing, lower his heart rate, think about the situation, and begin to develop a plan. What happens is there's two things that make this situation worse, and often the person's not really lost. They've lost their bearings. If they'll take this step, they'll be able to go right back the way they came, and they'll be able to move on. But here's what happens. At first, the person either realizes they're lost and they panic and they start going faster and faster, sure that they're going to get back to the trail or what have you. They get more and more lost and further and further off course and more and more disoriented. And by the time they do stop, they're in deep, deep trouble. This is the same as the overreaction of the person that, oh, the bird flu is going to kill us. And they go out and they spend $5,000 on canned food, stick it in their garage, and 10 years later it's sitting there and they feel like they've made a tremendous mistake and they kind of fall out from it. They need someone else to come help them. And then there's the other way that people do this in the wilderness. They're walking along. Everything seems okay. They realize they're lost in their heart, in their mind. They know they're lost, but they deny it. They don't speed up. They don't slow down. They don't stop. They don't do anything different. They just continue to walk along in a state of what's called normalcy bias. They deny the disaster. It's too, it's too much to think about. It can't really be that bad. Look at the bird. It's okay. I'm not really lost. If I just keep going, I'll kind of figure out where I'm at. And then they go into panic mode. This is exactly what happens with people if they become overwhelmed by the situation. They look at it, they learn enough about disasters to realize how dangerous things can be. They become overwhelmed, they don't assess the situation calmly and come up with a rational plan, and then they just kind of let it go and they stick their head back in the sand. Then when a disaster does show up, something does happen and they know they're fully unprepared, they panic even worse than the unprepared person that's never paid attention to it. They make an even bigger mistake. So the first rule in a survival situation, be it looking forward at planning a sustainable life or dealing with an acute situation, stop, assess the situation, determine everything you have available to you, where you are and where you want to get to, and work your plan from there. And then we'll move on to the next rule. I want you to notice as you move into step three, I haven't suggested anything yet that's going to require you to spend any money. I'm not going to get up to a point where you're going to need, really need to spend any money, other than maybe 50 cents for a notebook or something like that, until step six. A lot of this stuff's not expensive. It's about thinking and putting things together in a proper order. And nothing could be more true about what we're going to do next, because next we're not going to talk about spending money. We're going to talk about starting to get in a position to save money 
in a couple different ways. All I want you to do for step three is I want you to start journaling. And I want you to journal two things. And this isn't like a complex journal, Dear Diary, today I postulated the beginning of the universe and my navel. Nothing like that. What we're talking about with this journaling is simply a record. I want you to either get two notebooks or get one notebook and work from the front and the back so that you keep these two items separate. I want you to journal all your spending. I don't care if it's on a hamburger, a piece of bubble gum, the electric bill, the mortgage. I want you, every time you write a check, slide a card, um, spend cash, to just jot it down. Just You can just write down the item, electric bill, $311. That's it. I want you to do that, and I want you to do your Monday, uh, October, whatever, 2009. Everything listed under you spent that day, Tuesday, October, the whatever, 2009. You do it again. And you just keep doing that for at least two weeks. A month is better. All right. On the other journal or on the back side of that journal, coming the other way, a journal everything that you and your family eat. And you don't need to journal McDonald's and Burger King in here or uh, your trip to the steakhouse or anywhere in between that. I want you to journal everything you eat in your house. And uh, this is not so we can cut. This is so we can identify. All right, these are two different things in one step. I put it together because it's simple. It's a notebook and it's writing things down. The purpose of journaling the expenditures is in the future we're going to look at becoming debt free. We're going to start looking at that right away. We're not going to start doing it yet. We're going to look at it. We're going to make a plan for it. That's one of the next steps. The first step in doing that is to assess where all your money is going right now. And I'm not going to tell you you don't need this, you do need that, how to prioritize your life. That would make it my plan, not yours. And it won't work if it's my plan, not yours. So what you're going to do is you're going to become your own accountant. And you're just going to become conscious of every penny that you're spending. I'm not asking you to cut anything just yet. I just want you to become conscious of it. I want you to keep the spending journal for at least 30 days, if not 60. Food journal, you might be able to knock it out in two weeks, but just run it for a month. The food journal is totally different. We're going to start looking at building up at least 30 days of sustainable food at some point in the home. Now, we're not going to do this, I repeat, we're not going to do this by going out and buying a bunch of MREs and expensive uh, canned food. We'll look at doing that later and extending with that. But your first step is get to two weeks of food in the home. The reason that's your first step when it comes to food storage is you want to get to a month, you got to get to two weeks before you get to a month. right? So, to do this... What you need to identify is the things that you eat every day, that your kids eat, that your husband eats, your wife eats, whatever, your guests eat. Anything you eat that does not require refrigeration or freezing to be stored. You want to get a highlighter, and every time you eat something that can be stored in your pantry, highlight it. That's all you have to do for this step. Record your spending. Highlight the storable food that you eat. Write everything down that you eat. And when you write something down, you go, steak. I want you to put out next to it something you could substitute for steak that could be stored without freezing. And you may not know what that is yet, so you might just put a blank out there for now. What we're doing, we're taking step two, assess the situation, and we're formalizing it by doing the assessment in writing. I know this sounds boring a little bit, but it's very simple. Blend it into your life. It won't take you any extra time. Trust me, this step is imperative. You've got to do it. And even if you're an advanced survivalist, you've been doing this a long time, you're well prepped, you have a year's worth of food in your house, I don't care. If you've never done this, do this. Go get you a notebook over the weekend. Start Monday. Right? Just journal everything you spend. Journal everything you eat. 
Highlight everything you eat that's storable. That's it. Very simple step. Let's go on to the next one. Next, you're going to begin working on your plan for debt elimination and creating an emergency cash fund. You need to have an emergency cash fund of at least $1,000 in cash. That actually takes precedence over paying down your debt. You need the emergency fund in place first. This is $1,000 in cash that you can access immediately that's held separately from your random savings and your checking account and things like that. You can either do this in cash in a strong box in your house, firebox safe in your house, or you can do this in an individual savings account that's designed just for savings. Initially, initially, my advice to you is lock it up in a box in cash because it's going to give you additional flexibility should we end up in a situation where the power's out or something like that. You'll have cash on hand. Eventually, as a minimum cash reserve, I want a 1000 in a savings account somewhere that's not touchable except for true emergencies, and I want a 1000 in cash in the house. That's $2,000, and some of you may not have $2,000 in cash in your checking account on payday. I understand that. I still want you to work towards it. Not having the ability to do something is generally not believing you can, not really not having the ability. If you're unemployed, you're living on unemployment, I understand you're scraping, find a way to save $10 a month. Find it. It's there. If you do that now, when you get a job, you'll be able to save a lot of money. All right. So find a way to start putting something in. You need a $1,000 emergency fund minimum, and you need to be writing your plan for debt elimination. You'd follow the principle of the debt snowball made famous by Dave Ramsey. I won't go through the entire thing here, except you say, you, if you have five debts, you pay your smallest one first. You take every extra piece you were putting on that small debt plus its principal. You put it on the next debt. You keep doing it until you get to the biggest debt, and you pay off your debt. I want you to write that plant. If you're not familiar with the debt snowball, go to DaveRamsey.com. Look up the debt snowball there. Follow his plan. It doesn't need to be my plan. It works the way he presents it to you. All right, but you got to write your plan to get out of debt. Your plan to get out of debt might be two years. Somebody else's plan might be one year. Another person's plan might be four years. Don't be afraid to write the plan. Put it in place. It's going to scare you the first time because you're going to realize how long it's going to take to get out of debt, especially if you have credit card debt. And by get out of debt, I mean it's pay off the credit cards and pay off the cars. Okay, Your house, your mortgage, that's the legitimate debt in your life, and we'll address that after we become debt-free from the other debts. So that's your next step. Write the plan for debt elimination and create the emergency fund. The additional thing I want you to do is I want you to take your spending journal as you're doing this, and after you've done it for 30 days, I want you to go through it like a maniac accountant, and I want you to go in there and red line every single item you think you could give up spending money on. If you're not sure, red line it anyway. Give it up for a month. After a month, if you can't live without it, you know, phone up whoever you cut off. If you had a premium cable package and you redlined it, and you cut it off in November, and by December you're going stir-crazy, you've got to have your premium cable package back. Pick the phone up, call them, they'll turn it back on. Cut first before you assure yourself you can't live without. You'll be amazed amazed at how much extra money you can find to build that emergency fund and to to go ahead and start to develop a debt freedom plan. The reason you need the emergency fund before you start paying off the debt, why not just take that $1,000 and pay your debt with it? Because if you do that while you're paying the debt down, some emergency is going to happen in your life. It'll knock you off course, okay? And when you do that, you'll get out of the rhythm, and it'll go away, and you'll lose it. You'll get deeper into debt. It's what always happens to people. You have a $1,000 emergency fund. Car breaks down. You need 500 bucks. Pull $500 out. Pay the car. Keep paying on your debt. Rebuild your emergency fund. Real simple. Real easy. May not sound like the best preparedness plan in the world right now, but if you take these foundational principles in the first part of today's show, 
the rest of this stuff's going to become easy. If you don't, it's going to be very difficult to build that sustainable lifestyle for you. Here's the next one. Again, I haven't asked you to spend a penny yet. I've asked you to save your own money. The next one, you're not going to spend much money either. You're going to spend some money on paper, maybe some printer ink, and maybe a couple folders to put some things in. But I need you to take this one seriously. You need a documentation package. And it's not your address book. That's not sufficient. You need a documentation package. In that documentation package is, yes, the name, address, phone number, email, home phone, cell phone, Skype, every method of communication that you have with every person that you would want to get in touch with if all lines of communication were cut off, you had to go somewhere, and you didn't know when you were going to get to talk to them again. So that includes postal addresses as well. All of that information for every contact. This is family members, friends, people that work for you, people you work for. If you have contacts, you know, at a government level that can be helpful to you, they go in there, right? So if you if you have a person that works for an agency that may be privy to information, make sure their information's in there. The other thing that goes in there is the contact information for all the local places that you might need to call during an emergency where you stay put. Um, tree service that would come in and remove trees that were blown down in your neighborhood or on your property. You might say, "I have a chainsaw. I'll do that myself." Not if you're injured. Okay, your wife. You don't need your wife out there if you're a big he-man. I got a chainsaw. I'll do it. I got a chainsaw. I'll do it too. But what if I'm hurt? So by having, you know, and this is places you can rent equipment, places you can acquire additional materials, because we may not be in a total disaster scenario. It might be a disaster that's just your area, and what I mean, area, your neighborhood, and having everything all ready to go, and knowing who everyone to contact. Also in there, the locations that you would go to. You need to determine for yourself, if I were told to leave, I need three ways, three different places to go to. And I don't care if it's a hotel in Lubbock and you live in Dallas. I don't care if it's Aunt Jane's in Minneapolis and you live in Atlanta. I don't care if it's a true bug out location, which we'll talk about in the future, uh, for those of you who are brand new, where you actually have a second home and it's all prepared and ready to go. You've gone to that level. I don't care what it is. You need three places. Even if you have that great place to go to that you've set up for yourself, you need two alternatives. And that's why they might be, you know, uh, a hotel. That's why they might be relatives. But you need to have those three places. You need to go to Google Maps and pull out driving directions to each of those three locations. All right? Google Maps will give you the most direct route. That's route A. That's your primary route. Then you need to develop for yourself two secondary routes, routes for each of those three locations. So you have three locations, three routes. Then you need to establish somewhere along each one of those routes. Each one, they got nine routes now. Each one needs a rally point. That's a point where if you get separated from your wife and you're both heading to your primary location and she's ahead of you, she waits for you. And you know where to wait for each other. And you need a way to symbolize, I've been here and left, I couldn't wait for you any longer. Maybe it's a flag with the family crest on it. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a painted piece of wood that's painted a certain way that could only be you. But you have something that you leave there. Those documentation packages get built in in bulk. In other words, you have one for the car, one for the other car. If you have kids that drive one for their car, you have at least one that stays in the home. And they're all the same. That's why you do them on a computer so you can just print five copies. And you keep them the same, and when something gets updated, you update it in all of them so they're all mirrors of each other. So if you have a panicked wife on the phone or a panicked kid on the phone or a panicked husband on the phone, honey, turn to page six. Okay? You get the point. You're looking at the same thing. It's very easy to direct each other. Okay, you're not going to be able to take this route. You take that route. 
That's how simple this is. This is a very simple thing. One of the most overlooked things. I really don't see a lot of discussion about this in survival communities, forums, email lists, things like that. It's not sexy. It's not, you know, the Hollywood disaster. But it was one of the most practical things in the world that you can do for yourself. You have to build that documentation package. As you build that documentation package, you'll put things in there like copies of your identification documents. Um, or if you're not comfortable with things like you know having a copy of a social security card, you write down your numbers. If you're worried that somebody might get this documentation package, get bank account numbers or whatever, use an encryption. Use a simple encryption and make sure everybody knows what the encryption is and do like a plus two encryption. And all that means is if the first three numbers of your social security number were 444, if you're using a plus two encryption, it's 666, which might scare some people. Right, but those are just random numbers. Don't freak out or anything. All right, but you see what I'm saying. If it's a plus one encryption, four 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 would become five five five. You can do something to make a reminder in your your encryption package. Maybe it's a big dot, or you know, in the front if it's a plus one or two dots if it's a plus two. Maybe use a minus one or a minus two. Very simple way to add that additional, additional level of security if you're concerned about that. But make sure you have that documentation package. Without that documentation package, when the shit does hit the fan, you're going to be just completely lost. And you're not going to be able to help other family members who don't happen to be right where you're at. This is the way that you bridge the family back together in a crisis. It is the linchpin of everything we do going forward. And again, we haven't spent any real money yet. Six, we're going to start spending some money, but we're going to be cheap about it. Six, that's where we're going to go ahead and put together a bug-out bag for each family member. A bug-out bag is also known as a 72-hour kit. It's primarily designed to sustain you or whoever has it for a three-day period in as much comfort, safety, and security as possible. And it's designed not to run out into the woods and live off the land, which some people seem to think it is. It's designed, I got stuck at work, I need to get home, I'm on foot, three days, it's going to take three days to walk home. As crazy as that sounds, it could be that. It's, you know what, we're going to have to go live with Aunt Sue. We're going to be there for three days. We're going to be, you know, maybe it's a really bad time for everybody. She's on the edge of the disaster, but it's safer there. We're going to be able to take care of ourselves for at least three days. We're going to get stuck somewhere on the way, you know, in one of these shelters or something. It can happen to anybody. Don't think it can't happen to you. At least you have three days' worth of sustainability. We're going to go to a place, but it's going to take us more time to get there because of traffic and what have you. We're going to be able to feed, clothe, take care of ourselves for feeds. That's what a bug-out bag is. Now, we do do entire episodes on bug-out bags. I can't talk about all the stuff you would put in a well-equipped bug-out bag today, but I can tell you what goes in a cheap bug-out bag. A cheap bug-out bag is a cheap bag, cheap backpack. In there, you have at least two days' worth of clothing. You have at least four pairs of socks. Hopefully, uh, maybe just kept in the vehicle or alongside the bag, you have an extra pair of shoes. You don't know what shoes you're going to be wearing. You may not keep them in the bag so much as with the bag. Uh, you're going to have a three-day supply of food that does not need to be cooked or does not need much preparation for cooking. Simple heating, if you have a method of heating in the bag, you can rely on that. If you do not have the heating method, then you do not put food that needs preparation in there. Uh, these can be anything from, you know, meals ready to eat to, uh, beanies and weenies to ration bars. I don't care what it is, but enough food to give everybody a minimum of 2,000 calories a day for three days. Alright? You're gonna also have water to sustain you just at least for drinking and basic hand washing for three days. Now there's a lot more that goes into a fully equipped bug out bag. But if your choice is having one, if you have a family of four, and you can have one fully equipped bag, or you can have 
four bags like I just described, I'd rather you start with those four bags and then start building them out one at a time into more sophisticated, long-term planning, well-thought-out implements. But you need to have at least a basic assortment of things and throw a first aid kit and at least two of them if it's a family of four. If it's two, throw a first aid kit in both of them. Even if you use those crappy ones that come from the store pre-assembled, add some ibuprofen, some Tylenol, and uh, some aspirin to each one of those, maybe a little bit of Neosporin, and uh, some bug spray. That will get you a foundation. It is not a complete bug out bag, but it will have you ready to go if you have to. And because you have three days' worth of food there, now you've already extended your sustainability for at least three days because you might be using that bug out bag to bug in with. And while you're in this developmental stage and you haven't built up a lot of reserve food at home, at least it's something. It's a start. All right? So that's that step. Moving on from there, the next thing we need you to be doing is you can use your same journal and just take a different section of it. I need you to inventory your food in your pantry over a week or two. This is not what you eat, it's what's in there. So I want you, like on day one, to go to your pantry. And this is everything in your house that's there for food that if you threw the the, the breaker switch and all the power was off, it wouldn't spoil. It's every non-perishable item in your home. I want you to get an inventory. And I want you to break it up in your head into meals. If you have, you know, I know you don't have that great sirloin steak going with it tonight, but you know what? You're going to be eating uh, spaghetti and sauce because that's what you have. So how many days of sustainable food do you have in your home? Not freezer and refrigerator food, pantry-level food. How many days? Not how many calories, not what items. I want you to figure out how many days it is. And as things come off the list, I want you to cross them off the list and reduce your inventory, reduce your day count. At the end of two weeks, I want you to look at which was the lowest number of sustainable days you had in your home. You might be surprised. It might be like 10 days. And if you need a 30-day sustainable food supply, now all you have to do is build up 20 days. It might be four days. Then you've got a real problem. Okay, You're being very weak. Why do we have to take the low number? Because most people go grocery shopping every week. And our pantries do it up and down, up and down spike. And you need to prepare for the time you're at your lowest to have your 30 days of sustainability. So I want you to inventory your pantry over a week and determine how much food you have at your low point. Again, you haven't spent a dime to do that. It's important. I know it sounds boring, but do it. Now, once you know that, and you can even start in advance of that, you can begin storing up a 30-day supply of food that you'll eat anyway. This is why I had you journal the food that you're eating that's storable. right? Because a lot of people think, well, I'll eat that, I'll eat that, but they don't eat that. I want you to start. You should be able to, no problem. Most Americans shop so much in the center of the grocery store, which is really the most unhealthy place for us, but if that's what we eat, that's what we eat. Everything in the center of that grocery store can be stored for at least six months. So building up a 30-day supply of that, even if it's going to take you, if you stop buying it, and it would take you 60 days to use it all because you're also using fresh produce, you're using fresh meats. That's an advantage. That means you whittle away your supply slower. So I want you to use the items that you highlighted and start buying extras of those as your first steps and work towards a 30-day supply. Keep running that inventory count that's based on days of sustainability. Work hard to get it first to 14 days and then get it to a full month. When you get a full month and keep it there, you're going to be ready for 90% of what we ever might have to deal with. We'll talk about probability in a second. But these people that store a year, there's nothing wrong with that. It makes sense. I myself, full assets have at least six months of sustainability on food. And I think it's a noble goal to get there. But if everybody in this country could get to 30 days, we'd advert 90% of what could come our way. At least 90%. 
So make that step one. Get to that 30-day uh, period. Now, the next thing I want you to do is begin to extend that 30 days to 60, but I, this is where I want you to start looking at long-term food storage. This is where I want you to look at things like Mountain House, Yoder's Meech, uh, MREs, uh, storable grains, store, you know, storable things like beans, putting them in a long-term storage where you take a five-gallon bucket and you fill it up with a bunch of packs of beans and rice. And uh, some things like uh, some bullion and things that you can use to, to flavor that. So that basically you have a great big bucket of uh, 20 different ways you can make rice and bean soup. And you have that in a mylar pack and you put an O2 absorber in there and you seal it with a gamma lid and it's a rugged structure. It's not going to get infiltrated by rodents and that, that kind of storage will last five years. Even if the beans have an expiration date, trust me, folks, beans are rice stored that way five years is it's cakewalk, unless you have them out in a 100-degree shed, assuming you have some kind of climate control around that five years. So I want you to get to an additional 30 days of that type of storage. You can do it very cheaply by assembling it yourself, rice and beans, uh, pastas, uh, different things like that, into a long-term storage uh, container, or you can go ahead and just buy the things that are already made to do that. So what you're trying to do is get to 60 days, and in your initial 60 days, you have a balance of 50-50. Long-term storage, short-term, everyday items. As you go forward working towards six months, I want that balance to actually shift in favor of day-to-day items. Where at six months, you're more along the lines of four months of day-to-day items, two months of long-term storage. So if you got out to a year, eight months day-to-day items, four months long-term storage. And that gives you a tremendous amount of flexibility. That ratio works very well. You can you can move it a little bit. You can go up to you know, um, let's say seventy percent day to day and thirty percent long term. Or you can pull back back down to that fifty fifty. But don't do all all of one because it loses its flexibility for you there. And what'll happen is with a year of day to day stuff, you'll be not consuming it fast enough. And a lot of it will be spoiling. And then I want you to start, as you build up the long-term storage, take your 30 days, your your one month, take it out to a month and a half, and start using some of it. So you buy freeze-dried cubed meat as one of your one of your long-term storage items. Well, go ahead and open a can. Use it for cooking. Learn to use it now. Don't wait till you need it. If you start doing that and you keep replacing it and you keep building up both sides of this, what you end up with is not just long-term storage uh, food items, but long-term storage food, food items you use. Now, if you have your gamma-sealed, uh, you know, uh, O2 absorbed uh, beans and rice bucket and pasta buckets, don't open those. Buy small quantities of them and use them without opening those containers until, so let's say, several years down the road when you're a little bit more in advanced state because there, there is a big long-term reserve for you. But that way you'll be using the same items so you'll learn how to make them part of your diet. That is just so important. In addition to, now the next step is in addition to that documentation package, your three destinations, um, your three routes to each destination, I want you to also think if you had to just get 50 miles away for a couple days, where would you go? I mean, it's an acute disaster. It's like a hurricane, uh, it's a weather event, it's some riding, and you just don't feel comfortable being there, and you think, you know what, the police will come in and sort this out, and I'll be able to come home in about 48 hours, but I want to get my family out of here. I just need to back off a little bit, a 50-mile a fifty back off. Where would you go? Most people in a 48-hour period will whip out the, uh, hopefully not the credit card, but the debit card with the Visa logo on it, and uh, check into a hotel for a couple of days, but know where those hotels are. So have kind of midway fallback points. 
Just think about that. It'll start to make you find holes in your plan. This one is not an imperative step, but I think it'll start making you think. And you'll start saying to yourself, well, 50 miles is far enough for most of what would happen in my area. Or 50 miles, I'm still in the middle of the city with this urban sprawl. And it'll help lead you to better decisions. So it's a simple step, but it's one I suggest you take along your journey. The next one is, I want you to start thinking, if you have elderly parents or other family members that might depend on you, how would you help them in a disaster? I want to be honest with you. A lot of your family members, you can talk to them about disaster prep until you're blue in the face. They're not going to do a damn thing. They have normalcy bias and ostrich syndrome, which means even in the middle of a disaster, a lot of these people would deny the disaster right up to the point where the water's rising into their living room. And some people will just go upstairs and continue to deny it. That's how crazy it is. And some people are just ostriches. They can't think about it. So it's easy to say, well, hey, I'm taking care of my own. But if you have a 75-year-old father, he is your own. All right? If you have an 82-year-old mother or mother-in-law, she is your own. And those are the people that are going to be most at risk. So specifically with elderly parents, or elderly parents that live far away. Maybe you have elderly parents or elderly in-laws, but they live a couple hundred miles away from you. And maybe going to their place is not a good option. Maybe they're in an old folks home or something like that. You just need to start developing some contingency plans for them. If they're on, most of the elder, elderly, because of our pharmaceutical-based society now, are on maintenance medications. And I think a lot of them don't need to be. I think a lot of it's overprescribed, but once they've been on it for five years, they need it at that point. They, they've been developed into a state of dependency. So if they're on maintenance medications, make sure you have them for them. Make sure you have a plan for the people that you care the most about that aren't going to do anything for themselves. Because when it comes down to it, you might say, you know what I tried to tell you, you're the grasshopper, I'm the ant, stay outside. You're not going to really want to do that. So start developing a plan to be able to provide at least some aid and comfort to the people that are closest to you that won't take these steps. And I think it'll be a lot easier to get them to take these steps. If you take all the steps I'm giving you today, you get on the road toward it. It's completely sane and rational. You're following my rule number one. Everything you do to prepare for disaster should make your life better today, even if nothing goes wrong. And everything I've told you so far helps make your life better today. When you can show them that and say, these are the things that I've done to help you out, it's probably going to be easy to get them to take a few steps. But they're not going to do it when you're just talking about it. They're going to do it when they've seen your action and you can show them a pathway that looks logical and sane. And they still might not, so still be ready to help those. The next thing I really need you to do is I want you to do something that's going to sound totally like nothing to do with modern survivalism or you know, prepping or what anything else. I want you to have an updated resume at all times. and I want you to be prepared to lose your job tomorrow. I want you to be prepared that tomorrow morning you'll walk into work and I'll say, sorry, you're out of a job. Goodbye. Get out of here. You don't even get a day of severance. Goodbye. I want you to be prepared for that every single day of your life for the rest of your life. I want you to have everything in place. I want you to have your network strong, people that you can call and ask who's hiring. I want you to have letters of recommendation ready to go. Uh, when you have a letter of recommendation that's more than a year old, uh, see if you can find somebody else to write you a new one. Uh, or go back to the well and ask the same one that did it. But I want you to be completely prepared to go into job searching mode at any time for two reasons. One, you may very well have to do it. Two, it will light a fire under your ass to being prepared because you'll realize that your job is not secure. I just answered a, a question for a listener very recently uh, down in South Texas who said, I make $165,000 a year and my job is secure. And, my, and then he had this whole you know scenario planned out in front of him of uh, buying another piece of property. I want to know my opinion. Before I could even answer his question to say, first of all, your job is not secure. Nobody's job is secure. We're all self-employed. The day that we cannot 
make money for our employers or the day we cost our employers too much, we go out the door. So if you know that you could lose your job tomorrow, all this stuff you'll start to take it seriously. The debt elimination, the planning, the documentation, the extra food, the savings, the cutting expenses, the living a more sustainable life, if you get that in your head. That doesn't mean you walk around in fear of it. On the contrary, you look at the possibility as the number one disaster facing Americans today. We worry about all these Hollywood disasters, and I'll go into this more in just a second, because... We're going to talk about disaster probability in a second. But people watch these movies and meteors hitting the earth and solar flares knocking out the power grid and nuclear war and pandemics and epidemics and, you know, swine flus and all this stuff. But you know what? Nine million people in America lost a job this year. Nine million. There's only 300 million people in this country. Nine million this year lost jobs. Many of them, they lost jobs that are not coming back. They're going to have to find something else to do with their lives. Number one disaster that can hit you. By understanding the reality of that number one disaster, you'll start with calm, rational planning, and you'll work through it step by step by step. The next thing I want you to do is, even though I just told you to do it in a way, because remember I didn't say sit around and focus on losing your job, plan to lose your job. I just said be prepared to lose your job. And I want you to understand it's going to be ready and being prepared. If, if you say you're ready for something, that means you actually look at it with some level of anticipation. right? You would never say that you're ready to lose a family member to death. You'd never say that. If you said that, people would look at you like you're crazy. But you might be prepared if you lose a family member to death because you have life insurance. So that's being prepared. That's not being ready. So I want you to be prepared to lose your job, not ready to lose your job. So the next rule, never focus on one event. Never get that Hollywood disaster of the meteor coming in your head. Never look at whatever the media or the latest person selling survival items is talking about. Hey, did you read the book one second after? One nuclear weapon could set you know, an EMP and shut down our power grid. Oh, terrorists are going to shut down our power grid. Oh, there's going to be a pandemic. Oh, the swine flu is going to kill us all. Oh, the swine flu is not really that bad? I don't need to prepare anymore. See, this is the danger. When you start thinking about a single solitary disaster, and you prepare for that disaster, especially disasters with dates on it, Y2K was a perfect example of this. On the year 2000, every computer in the world is going to go crazy. And everybody that prepared for it went nuts about it. And then it came and it went away, and they all quit preparing. Instead of learning the lesson that there are so many automated, electronic, government-run, distribution, corporate-controlled, Systems out there that are affected by technology, that are infected, by, that are affected by environmental conditions, that are affected by stupid decisions made by policymakers, that could be disrupted on any given day for any given reason. And saying, "I have started to live a more protected life," they went, "Oh, big deal." And you know, you could buy a generator uh, in the paper used for half of what the guy paid for it four months ago, and it never ran. It was a great opportunity for people like me, because what we did is we said, hey, this is great. Look what we can do, right? We can go out and we can buy all this stuff up cheap. But it was a terrible thing for them, because those people became what I call turbocharged ostriches. They don't just put their head in the sand now. They dig the hole out with their feet, and they jam their head down until they're up to their butt in the sand. They'll never look at it again, because all their neighbors, all their friends, all their family members said, you're crazy, Tom, buying all this crap, stocking your garage up with it. 
Because Tom was crazy. That's what happens when you focus on individual causative factors. When you think about one thing, oh, this one thing's going to get me. When that one thing doesn't happen long enough, you go back to sleep. You turn away from this. And during the time you are preparing, you overreact. And you break the rule of making sure the things that you do improve your life, even if nothing goes wrong. If you follow that rule, you'll never fall out. Why would you stop doing something that's making your life better today? That's what disaster planning is when it's done properly. It makes your life better today. The next thing I want you to do is I want you to plan on starting a garden. Or go ahead and get it started. It depends on what the season is. But I want you to start planting a garden. I don't care if it's one four-foot by eight-foot bed that you grow some lettuce and tomatoes and peppers in. But I want you to start planting and eventually start growing some of your own food. I want you to become a producer of food. No matter how much food you ever store, your, your storage capacity is finite. You have financial limitations and you have space restrictions. Most people do not have a warehouse large enough, nor the funds to stock a warehouse large enough, to store 10 years worth of food for all posterity and an underground bunker to go in if there's global thermal nuclear war and kick back for a decade and come out when everything's okay again. So, assuming that we're not going to be dealing with a nuclear war, because if we end up with a full all-out nuclear war, it may not really matter. Right? We could have nuclear events and maybe go into survival situations, but everybody launches everything. That's kind of the end game anyway, unless you're in a limestone cavern in Kentucky or something like that. And when you come out ten years later, it still might not be worth living. So assuming that's not going to be the case, then what we need to look at is how do I extend beyond the finite capacity of storage, and that's by becoming a producer. And there's a lot of things that happen when you start. And I also want you to start thinking about per planting permanent crops. All right, You probably have on your property right now several trees if you own property. If you're in an apartment, look at doing container gardening. Some of this stuff will have to wait or get involved with community gardening or gorilla gardening. But assuming you own property, you probably have multiple trees on your property, multiple shrubs, bushes, vines, plants that are, that are perennials. They come back every year on their own. Once you get them established the first year or two, you really don't have to do anything with them other than give them some water when it's dry out. That's it, and they come back every year. I, I want to know, what do they produce for you? Is it a grapevine that goes out and produces grapes for you, or grapes that you can turn into wine, or grapes you can turn into jelly? Is it an apple tree that makes you apples, a pear tree that makes you pears, or is it like most Americans? We have climbing vines that don't even produce a bean because we've bred it out of them. We have pear trees that don't produce pears. We have pistachio trees that don't produce pistachios. We've embraced the fruitless mulberry tree. And we have all of this wonderful land that we're gifted to be able to actually own in our country, when in many countries a person can't own land. The state always owns and controls the land. And we take this beautiful little piece of land that we have, this little suburban utopia, or urban utopia, or rural utopia, and we plant all kinds of crap, and we care for it, we take care of it, we feed it, we provide for it. It gives us nothing back. I want you to start looking at putting things on your property that give back to you. That's how you're going to turn your home into a homestead. Whether it's in downtown urban area, and you have a little tenth of an acre plot, like the Dervaises do out in California, and those guys... Produce 6,000 pounds of food on a tenth of an acre. Or it's that nice, beautiful place in the country. I don't care what it is. You can make anything produce if you think about it. But it'll start with a 4 foot by 4 foot or a 4 foot by 8 foot or a bunch of big pots, bed, garden, growing some food that you can grow for yourself. And planting a few bushes, some blueberries, some blackberries, some raspberries, a fruit tree or two, for God's sakes. Take that step. 
end. How does it come up against the number one rule? Everything in your life must make it better today, even if nothing goes wrong. You tell me that a property with a couple fruit trees on it, a beautiful grapevine, maybe some blueberry bushes along the back fence, won't sell for more than the exact same property if you take all that away. It'll increase your property value. You'll eat better food. You'll have a little bit of a produce section in your backyard. And what I just described will give you produce over different times of the year. The berries producing early, the grapes producing at mid-season, and the trees producing late. And you can do that in just about any suburban backyard. So why have we lost that in America? Because we've been convinced by society that the system will always be there. Well, hopefully you're beginning to understand the system may not always be there. And even if it is, it's not good to be dependent upon it. This is your first real step towards independence, producing your own food. And a hundred years ago, it wasn't crazy. Everybody in this country did it. And there was a reason that everybody in this country did it. They came from somewhere else. Most of the people in this country between 1880 and 1920 that were building this country were immigrants. They came from another place, another time, where you couldn't own land. And not all of them dreamed of 40 acres and a mule. Some of them dreamed of a little half acre, a third of an acre. It was a utopia to them. And little suburban gardens and fruit trees sprung up all across America, and our people were self-sufficient. I'm not suggesting we go back to the lack of technology at that time, but I am suggesting we take the wisdom of that time and bring it forward into now, into the today. The next thing I need you to do is I want you to learn about disaster commonality. This might be the most important way you can mentally tune your mind in the world to dealing with disaster. Disaster commonality simply means that it doesn't matter if it's a localized disaster where tornadoes tear apart my town or a major disaster because we keep doing stupid things with our money, the dollar is completely devalued, and the government and infrastructure of the United States collapse. In those two scenarios, the only difference is the duration and the impact. But the commonality is the things that I, if I'm the effective party, I have to do without. I have to do without a supply of food. I have to do without a supply of water. I have to deal with civil unrest. If you start to understand disaster commonality, you'll realize that there's actually three things at play that we worry about in a disaster. The first, and believe it or not, the one that's the least problem is the disaster itself. The event. The event happens. Almost every event in nature and man-made is a timed event, meaning it has a beginning and an end of the actual occurrence. There's a tornado. It comes through. Boom. It's done. The event's over. If you're still breathing, if you're not bleeding, you made it through the event. But then we have two things that become the big problem. The reaction of the population and the reaction of the government. The population goes crazy. People start hoarding. People go nuts. People do irrational things, have irrational behaviors, go into mob mentality. And then the government, we have to worry about them either overreacting Declaring martial law when it shouldn't, making the situation worse when people rebel against it, or we have to deal with their incompetence or their inaction. And those two factors, the way that the government responds, either overreaching or not enough or ineffectually, and the, the panic of the people around you who are completely unprepared, those are your two big dangers. Those are what create the disaster commonality. That's what cuts the food supply off. There's enough if everybody would calm down. Think rationally. Do the things we're talking about today that everybody could get by. Everybody could find a way through this. We could adapt and overcome as a, as a, as a community. But it's not what's going to happen because the people that won't pay attention to the things like I'm telling you today, they're the ones that are going to go absolutely nuts. And then the government, either we have Hurricane Katrina will show up a week later 
or we have complete overreaching and we start going in and imploring curfews and cracking down with martial law in a situation where we've gone too far or maybe they even give the right response the best response they could under the situations they still can't help everybody you have to be able to help yourself that all links back to the disaster commonality so again always think about the systems of support that could be cut off don't worry about what causes that system of support to cut off the next thing to do is learn about disaster probability Okay. What you have to understand is, I talked about this already a little bit, but the biggest disaster that's most likely to happen to you happens to you and you only. Your neighbor doesn't even care, other than if he likes you, he feels bad for you. And that is, you lose your job or somebody in your family dies. Or somebody in your family gets a terrible long-term illness. Those are the three things that are most likely to happen to any individual walking around on our planet on any given day in the United States of America. And they're the ones that nobody even thinks about when we start talking about disaster probability or disaster preparedness as a whole. So those are the most likely things to occur. But let's think about things like saving food, having an emergency fund, paying off debt, growing your own food, having extra water, having an evacuation plan. Can that help you in these situations? Everything except the evacuation plan. I doubt you're going to need to evacuate because you lost your job. All right, or if somebody dies, you know, unfortunately dies in your family. But even the documentation package with everybody's information in it, in that awful situation, somebody comes to help you. How can I help? Well, we need funeral arrangements. We need everybody to be notified, talk to. I can't do it. I'm, I'm too grievous. You hand them the book, and they can do it for you. Are you starting to see how this all links together? Now, the big disaster hits. All of those things apply as well. So, but if we look at the probability, the disaster that affects your neighborhood is the next most likely. That's an acute weather event. That's a terrorist attack that happened to go off close to you. That is anything. That's riots in your little city area spilling into the suburbs. And that's more likely than a disaster at, like, let's say, a state-level disaster, where your state goes broke, like California. If you live in California, this might not be, you know, you actually might be more likely to see a state-level disaster than a regional-level disaster in the next two years. California is on the verge of bankruptcy. That would be one type of a state-level disaster, a very large weather event. And a state can go into kind of a large regional area as well. Hurricane Katrina did not just hit New Orleans. It hit New Orleans. It hit Alabama. It hit Mississippi. And hit other parts of Louisiana. There were people that were devastated throughout the whole region, and the news focused on New Orleans because that was what was sensationalizable. That's what they could make a big deal about. That's what they could bash the government with. That's what they could make George Bush look bad with. And I'm not sticking up for him. I'm just saying, that's what the media does. So they forgot about the people in Alabama and Mississippi. A little bit later on, when a tropical storm hit Jacksonville, Florida, and flooded Florida, no one even cared, because it was just a tropical storm. It didn't have the word hurricane behind it. And it stayed around for nine days. It disrupted the lives of thousands. Nobody talked about it. But these events of a large regional nature are the next most likely thing to occur. Then we move into the realm where we start to go into Hollywood disasters. Okay, these are the national level disaster or a global disaster. Asteroid coming from out, you know, asteroid coming from outer space. Collapse of the United States economy. Right? Or whatever else we can come up with. EMP from the sun. EMP from nuclear weapons. These are the Hollywood sensationalized disasters. Well, they're the least likely to occur. So as we prepare, we need to prepare starting out with the most likely in mind. You. Your family or you, your family and your neighbor. And from there, you, your family, your neighbor and your city. You and your family, your neighbor, and your state. What you'll find, though, is by the time you've prepared to be as ready as you possibly can for a disaster that's big enough to affect you, your family, 
your neighbor, and your city, you're about as prepared for the big disaster as you can possibly be. There's places you can tighten up, you can improve, you can increase longevity, but the whole plan is there, everything's ready to go, you're in sync with everything, you've gotten your debt paid off, you're saving money, you're investing in yourself, you're creating production, and all you have to do is keep doing that, and you'll become one of the most prepared people in the world without even thinking about it. And if nothing ever goes wrong, you'll have a great life. You'll be debt-free, you'll have a more valuable piece of property, you'll live with peace of mind, you'll walk with confidence, you won't make deals with the devil, so to speak, so you won't be willing to sign away your sovereignty to our government. You'll stand true, proud, you'll be what an American is supposed to be. That's how simple this really is. The next thing you need to do is start window shopping for some country land. Or, if you're not a country person, start window shopping for your perfect urban homestead. I want you to determine where do you really want to live? How do you really want to live? What do you really want out of your lifestyle? Now, this is easy for some people to do. Some people have always known, I want 10 acres in the country. Some people, it's like, I can have whatever I want. They've never even thought about it that way before. Well, you know what? What I mean by window shopping is going to places like Realtor.com, UnitedCountry.com, real estate sites online where you can look up properties. And you start thinking about different places you'd like to live, type some zip codes in, type some specs in, type some land dimensions in, and just start looking what's out there. How much does it cost? Where is it? Look all over the place. Even if you're sure I don't want to move away from my state, shop across the country, from Washington State to Florida, from Maine to Southern California. Shop everything. It's free. Use your spare time to do it instead of spending money or playing video games. Get an understanding of the real estate economy throughout the entire nation. If you live in another country, do it in your country. Why? It's completely free. When you eventually go to buy another property, you won't make stupid decisions about purchasing because you'll have more knowledge about the real value of property than 99% of real estate agents if you do this. And three, it'll help crystallize a vision for you of where you're going. Eventually, you'll say, you know what? I really want to live in this little part of the world. And I want this type of property, and this is what it's going to take to get there. And you start, start tailoring your life since you've unloaded all that crap debt, and you're not going to go back into it ever again. And you're building sustainability. If you lost your job and you had to go 90 days, you've got enough food, you've got enough money, you've got everything you need to just float through 90 days like it didn't even happen. You're stress-free. So now the next thing you need to do is build the life you really want. And I, I can't go deep into that today. I've done entire shows. You can go to the survivalpodcast.com and listen to it, finding land and finding property. But I'm telling you, take the first step and start looking. Do that now. Do that concurrently with everything else I've said today. Do it today. It's easy. It's fun. You'll enjoy it. It's educational. And it'll give you a vision of what you're really looking for. The next thing I want you to do is I want you to think of the children. Remember, you always hear it of people, think of the children, well, somebody think of the children. But I mean that in a different way. I don't mean it to sell some bullshit socialist program to the American people that we don't need. I'm talking about your children. In all of this, especially with men, we have this tendency we're going to bow up and we're going to be strong, and we're going to be riches, and I'll eat rice and beans if I have to, and daggone it, the kids will eat rice and beans if they have to, and if we have to hike for 40 miles through the wilderness, we'll do that, we'll do anything. Bullshit. Okay? Bullshit. Your seven-year-old daughter isn't going to do that. Your 42-year-old wife with a bad knee isn't going to do that. Your 13-year-old son, who's pretty tough, when all this is going around, is going to revert to what he is, a child. And he's going to cry, and it's going to be okay. So think of what you're going to do in a disaster to make it easier on your kids. Make sure if you have pets, you have plans to get your pets out. That's about your children as much about your pets and you. 
kid in the back seat scared we're leaving our home. I don't know where we're going, but the Labrador Retriever's back there with them. Makes it easier. Make sure you have food for the animals. Make sure you have a plan. Where are they going to go? Don't go past your sustainability with your pets. Make sure you can take them all with you. You bring them in your home. You made a commitment to them to take care of them. And that means if you leave, they go with you. And that's part of taking care of the children, too, folks. And for some of you, your pets are your children. You're childless. You treat the pets like children, so take it there. But on, on a serious note, with the kids itself, think of what it's like for a kid in one of these situations where they have to go somewhere that's even not even dangerous but boring. Make sure you have board games as part of your plan of stuff to take with you. And in the house, playing cards. Everything that you can to occupy the mind of a child or even an adult. Reading, storybooks, things like that. They don't need to be plugged into a wall. You could just end up at home for two weeks. We can't go anywhere. The power's out. There was an ice storm. It knocked down the power. The roads are closed. We can't get anywhere. And it can even happen in Texas that way. It's it's, it's happened. Okay? Not two weeks, but a week. So, there's no power. Hopefully, you maybe you can run a generator, get a little bit of electricity going, run up, get a fire in the fireplace, what have you. At least it's cold outside. You can take the meat from the refrigerator, stick it outside to keep it cold in a cooler, or what have you. All right? But you're stuck there. It's tough on a kid. Make sure you have food that they'll eat, especially in that initial 30-day supply, things they really like. Double highlight the food that your kids like. Make that a big part of your storage. You know what, if they like macaroni and cheese, screw it. It's 30 days. Feed them all the macaroni and cheese they want. Right? They'll be okay. But make sure you're thinking of your children in all these places. Make sure husbands that are big and tough, and I've got my AR-15, and my my hunting knife, and my LBE, and I'm going to go out there and I'll fight them, whoever you think they are. Make sure you're not forgetting the family that makes all this worth doing in the first place. And make sure you're preparing to make things for for them as easy as you can. There may be times when, yes, times are going to be tough. You're going to have to suck it up, Johnny, and you're coming with Dad, and let's go now because you got to do it. You've got to be tough with him to save his life. But in a lot of situations, it's not called for. Make sure you don't put yourself into a situation where it's called for, where it didn't have to be. Do everything you can to make things easy on those around you, especially your children. Next, I want you to assess your normal preparations. And what by normal preparations, what I mean is I want you to look at the things that the people around you that think you're crazy for having 30 days worth of food in your cabinet think are normal. Life insurance, car insurance. One of the best investments I've ever made in my life is the 70-some-odd bucks a year we pay for AAA. Um, recently, I ended up with my truck stuck halfway between the main road and my bug-out location in Arkansas on the 4th of July in the middle of the day at 102 degrees. I had a four-mile hike to the bug-out location, a four-mile hike to the main road. Called AAA. They came and took the truck away. Called the neighbor because we had his number. Uh, he came down, got us, gave us a ride up to our place. We were stuck there without a car for a few days. But you know what? It wasn't that big a deal because we were prepared. But without AAA, that would have been a real mess. Pretty hard to find a tow truck driver on the outskirts of Hot Springs in the middle of the day on the 4th of July. AAA, one phone call done. And they kept calling back to make sure. So these common sense preps. If you have kids that are going to go to college, you have college funds for them. Hey, you know what? If you'll take the first step and pay off your debt, you'll be able to put more money in there for them. But real survivalists don't just have MREs and beef jerky and beans, bullets, and Band-Aids. They have college funds for their children, so if that's what their children want in life, they can have a better education. They have life insurance, so if they get killed, those they leave behind don't have to eke out a survival but can live a life. 
Alright, so I want you to assess those, and wherever they're lacking, it's very inexpensive to shore them up. On life insurance, here's my advice. Stay the hell away from whole life. By term life, put the difference into your savings and your investments. By the time you're 80, you won't care about life insurance anymore. Don't let a guy tell you, when you're 78, you won't be able to afford life insurance. Tell him, you know what, fool? By the time I'm 78, I'm going to have no debt, a bunch of money in the bank, and when they, they bury me, they can bury me upside down so the world can kiss my butt. Get out of here. I don't buy whole life. Stay away from that. It's garbage. It's designed to make insurance salesmen wealthy and rob you of your wealth with a bad investment. So assess those normal preps. Shore them up wherever they're lacking. The last thing, the most important thing that I can tell you today, take ownership of your life and your plan. You notice I gave you all these steps and I gave you immense flexibility in these steps. I told you to track your spending. I didn't say, if you make X, cut your spending to Y. I didn't say, go out and buy this brand of food. I didn't say, when you inventory your counter, if you don't have these things in there, you're wrong. I said, write a plan to eliminate your debt. I told you a basic way to do it. I gave you another resource to go figure out how to get it done with. I've referenced other shows that I've done that are more in-depth. and said, go there, search my site, find them, put them together. But I haven't actually told you specifically what you must do. I've told you guidelines that you can use to formulate a disaster preparatory plan that will help you and your family deal with life situations day to day. And you know what? I did it that way for a reason. I've been doing it that way since the first day I ever talked to an audience. Because I know one fundamental... If I give you my exact plan and say, fill the blanks in here, do this exactly this way, and if you don't do it this way, you're wrong, 99% of you that hear me, even if you agree with me, will never do it. And if you start to do it, you will fall out. You won't keep doing it. And when time comes that you really need it, it won't be there for you. And there's one simple reason for that. That simple reason is you don't own it. You don't control it. So you won't believe in it. So what I I do here and I try to do this every day, is give you as many guidelines as I can, as many ideas as, you, as I can. And then you pick and choose the ones that make the most sense for you, that fit into your life. There's things that I'll say you got to do. Eliminating debt, saving up some money, cutting expenses. I won't tell you exactly how or what time frame to do them in, because then it becomes mine. But you got to do those. And I'll tell you, if you tell me you can't, you're full of shit, you can. You're denying your own power. Go find it, go claim it, go do it. But the how is up to you. The order is up to you. I gave you these steps in an order. It's not a rigid order. You do them in the order you want to. But for God's sakes, look around you right now and realize how many things there are that you're dependent upon that you don't even think about. If you go home tonight and you eat a steak and a salad, that steak was probably from a cow in West Texas. How many systems of support were necessary to get that cow killed butchered, shipped, cut, and put in a case just so you could go buy it at Kroger. The salad was probably grown in Argentina this time of year, especially since we have a drought in California and the idiots out there shut off the water to the San Joaquin Valley to protect the minnow. All right, So we have a natural disaster, a drought, a man-made disaster of stupidity and incompetence, and those two things working together to create a food shortage, and now your salad is almost always coming from Argentina this time of year. How do you think it gets here from Argentina? How many systems of support? What would one trucker strike do to both of those things that you're dependent upon? So understand your vulnerabilities, but don't be afraid of them. Embrace them and build a plan to compensate for them. But do it your way, in your time, 
Just use the information that's there. Take the things that I've given you. Take the things that so many other people are giving you. There's so much information online today. There's great forums. There's great communities. Get involved with our forum, the survivalpodcast.com slash forum. But I can tell you that if you do this, you're not going to regret it. I promise you, you won't regret being prepared. But I also promise you, if you ever really have need of being prepared and you're not, you're really going to regret it. It could be a job loss. It could be a pandemic, a real pandemic, not this recent swine flu. There are diseases out there, folks, and they don't care how old you are. They don't care what race you are. They don't care how much money you have. You get them, they kill you. It's only a matter of time until we have to deal with one of them on a global scale. Sooner or later, it's going to happen. The truckers go on strike. We have a problem with the oil supply. There's so many things. There's a couple conflicts in the world, even if they're not directly with us. There's so many things that can cause a problem. And all I'm saying is, take ownership of your life, take ownership of the lives of the people around you, and be as prepared for them as you possibly can be, in a very smart way that makes your life better today, even if those days never come. And understand that sooner or later, it always rains. And all I'm saying, you know, folks, carry an umbrella. And that's what we've talked about today, is building an umbrella around you and your family to do the best job that you can to protect them. There's things that happen in this world that we cannot control. There's things that happen in this world that no matter how prepared you are, could wipe you out. You could be on the road to work tomorrow, boringly driving off to work and get hit by a Mack truck and be gone. You can't worry about those things, but you can prepare for the things that leave you still here without all the things you become accustomed to and be ready to deal with them on a daily basis. If you'll do that, if you'll start taking little steps at first towards self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, freedom, personal education, and concern for those around you, you're going to find yourself a year from now an amazingly different person, prepared for whatever could possibly come your way. And in a relaxed state, not a paranoid state. That's what living a better life today is really all about. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.